This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. Great to have you along this Monday. And today, a CBH Shareholders Association has just been formed with the aim of securing a rebate for growers. Earlier this year, and in an unprecedented move, the state's main grain handler decided it would direct the profits of its marketing and trading division, so hundreds of millions of dollars, to the supply chain rather than pay a rebate to growers who sold to CBH. Mount Walker farmer Bill Cowan is the inaugural chair of this new association. He says the co-op has made a bad decision and it needs to be corrected. The plain truth of it is it's not right that a small group can be paying for a, um, for the rest of the people. And this is where in a cooperative is where a cooperative starts to break down is when you have the free rider effect of everyone else in the cooperative riding off the coattails of somebody, some small group that are putting all the money in. That's going to, that, that will be the end of the CBH cooperative very, very quickly. Do you agree with Bill Cowan? Let me know on the text 0448 922604 or if you've got a different view, share that as well. The text 0448 922604. Bill Cowan along shortly. And you'll also head into a shearing shed at Cranbrook, 330 kilometres southeast of Perth, where another record was broken over the weekend. Feel sore, a little bit sore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel actually, it's sort of just numb all over. Uh, I'm Jim Waterhoo Brown, uh, we just broke the freestand record and uh, it was a tough effort. A big weekend at Cranbrook, you will head into that shearing shed after half past 12 today. Seven past 12 here on the Country Hour. And after seven years of negotiation, an Indigenous land use agreement between the Wadjuri people and the Commonwealth Government has been signed and registered. The agreement allows a $3 billion radio telescope to be built in the state's Murchison region, 300 kilometres northeast of Geraldton. The deal has been done, but not everyone is happy. Joe Prendergast has been following this story and was at Murchison over the weekend. Joe, how significant is this land use agreement? Very, Belinda. It's been a long time coming too. I think it took much longer than what the Commonwealth and the CSIRO first envisaged when they started these negotiations with the Wadjuri about seven years ago. I think it was pretty difficult to work out how this telescope could be built in a way that didn't disturb significant places for traditional custodians. But now it's been signed and construction of this radio telescope, which is called the Square Kilometre Array, can begin. So what is the Square Kilometre Array? Well, the SKA, as it's called, is a giant telescope and it's being built by an international community of scientists. Part of it is in South Africa. The other part is now going to be built in the Murchison. So in the Murch, they're going to build about 132,000 antennas in clusters. And the antennas are a bit taller than me. They look like little Christmas trees, sort of metallic structures. And if you can imagine three spiralling arms stretching for about 65 kilometres across the landscape and those arms being full of antennas, 130-odd thousand of them, that's what we'll see in the Murchison. You might hear that and think, what on earth is the purpose of it? 
Douglas Bock is the Director of Space and Astronomy with the CSIRO. Oh, well, the SKA is a project to measure radio waves coming from the, the furthest parts of our universe. And these are radio waves that are the same as the ones that come from FM radio stations so, or, or television stations, if you remember the old antenna on the top of your house. And those radio waves tell us about how the very early universe, uh, what the state of the very early universe was, how galaxies were formed and eventually how stars were formed and how we came to be here on planet Earth. So some pretty big aspirations there. And Douglas Bock was saying that the Murchison is perfect for this project because it's so sparsely populated. So there won't be much light or noise pollution. And what are the details of this land use agreement the CSIRO has signed with the Wadjuri people? Well, the land use agreement allows the project to go ahead and it to put it really simply, guides where the antennas can be built so it doesn't interfere with special places. There was a tremendous effort and survey um, which happened in the planning process to identify special places and, and work out how to build it around them without disturbing them. So it guides that, but it also has a cash component to it. I was told the value of it is confidential, of that cash component, but it, then it also has non-cash parts like jobs and training opportunities and on, ongoing engagement with the Wadjuri people. 10 past 12 here on the Country R. Joe, you were at a gathering over the weekend where Wadjuri people met with the CSIRO and the SKA scientists. They met at the Murchison settlement to mark the signing and the registration of this land use agreement. What was the mood like? There was about 150 people there at the settlement. It was a pretty simple lunch. There was a sausage sizzle, kangaroo stew and some cakes. And it felt really, though, that there was mixed emotions in the crowd. Some people seemed pretty happy and they were excited, others not so much. And that was really later reflected in the speeches that I heard from some of the Wadjuri people. The deal has been done, it's been signed, but we heard one of the Wadjuri negotiators, Anthony Dan, really bluntly say that he didn't like the land use agreement and he didn't think that the Commonwealth's promises would be honoured. At least and give, make some genuine attempt to try and engage Wadjuri contractors. Some genuine, be seen to be bringing Wadjuri to the table and having conversations and discussions around the requirements to be ready for those contracts. You know, don't, don't just say, well, here's a contract, throw it out there for the general public and, and then um, we're not in the race. You know, the general development of, of Wadjuri contractors to put them in a position where they can be competitive and they, they, they can fulfil their obligations. Walk hand in hand with Wadjuri people to be able to, Wadjuri contractors, to be able to enter into joint ventures and, and whatever else needs to be done in there. That won't happen. I'll be very surprised if uh, CSIRO fulfil their obligations in relation to protection of our, our sites and our areas. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about what's going to happen. And Anthony Dan pointed to a 2009 land use agreement between the Wadjuri people and CSIRO and he said there that promised employment and contracting for Wadjuri people didn't eventuate. So I think he used the words, the proof will be in the pudding. So he's quite concerned. Dwayne Mallard was another of the Wadjuri negotiators. He's more optimistic about the Iliwa and the results of it for his people, but he still seemed somewhat cautious. At the centre of it is how do we uphold and maintain the responsibilities and obligations that we're born into, which is to preserve and protect and maintain the dignity of our culture and land and keep culture and people 
Do you so feel like you've done that? We've certainly done it the best we can. We're hopeful for the opportunity and choice that will come from this project. I mean, on the whole, the hard work for Waiuri is behind us in regard to standing strong together and coming together. Unfortunately, in a lot of instances, there's uh, not much to celebrate when it comes to projects on country because they're extractive and destructive and they desecrate culture and history that's tens of thousands of years old. And the thing about this project is it sits lightly on the country and it's not extractive. And so that allowed us to stand side by side with the science and share what's significant and important and non-negotiable in terms of how it's managed and preserved. On the other side of the negotiating table was David Lachetti. He was the chief negotiator for the Commonwealth Government for the Indigenous Land Use Agreement. And I did put some of those concerns about promises not being met to him. That's been a challenge that the Wadjuri have put to us, that uh, uh, throughout the negotiations is, you know, well, once we've got the, ag- the agreement, what happens next? We've made it clear that, that we want to step in behind our commitments and to follow through and to deliver on those. We know it won't be easy, but it's important we work with the Wadjuri to do that. And so to support some of those things, we've got various committees. We've got a liaison committee, which is made up of uh, uh, Commonwealth officers, CSIRO and the Wadjuri, to work through those kinds of issues so that they have a forum that they can come to us, keep us honest and make sure that we're delivering the things that we've agreed to. And David Lachetti was saying that he's very comfortable with the Iliwa as it's been signed and registered. The other concern for some of the Wadjuri people is around what this will mean for the Pyre community, which is about 30 kilometres from the SKA site. We visited Pyre and they were telling us that they need things like running drinking water because the water out there, they believe, is contaminated with uranium. Um, they want to see improved septic systems, reliable power, and they're really hoping that having a three billion dollar project in part built next to them uh, will improve their standard of living but there doesn't seem to be any specific promises for Pyre apart from an internet line which is expected to be built next year. So Joe, what's the next step here? Well, the next step is construction, and that's going to start in the next few months. The telescope is expected to take about five years to start generating information that will really excite some of the scientists. So I imagine those roads in the Murchison are about to get pretty busy with trucks carting construction gear to site. Joe, thanks for that. Joe Prendergast with the latest on those negotiations. After seven years of negotiations, that Indigenous land use agreement between the Wadjuri people and the Commonwealth Government has been signed and registered and the agreement allows a $3 billion radio telescope to be built in the state's Murchison region, 300 kilometres northeast of Geraldton. 16 past 12. Well, the long-running and bitter legal dispute between a group of Pilbara traditional owners and Andrew Forrest Fortescue Metals Group is making news again. The Yijibandi Aboriginal Corporation has been seeking compensation from FMG for damage caused by the company's Solomon Mines since negotiations on a land use deal failed earlier this year. The Aboriginal group recently asked the court to hold compensation proceedings on country near the mine. Greg McIntyre is a lawyer who worked on the historic Marbo case, 
which established native title in the Australian legal system. He gave his take about how the case might play out when it visits the Pilbara. It's been accepted over decades now that it's a more appropriate way to receive evidence from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about their country um, rather than sitting them in an artificial courtroom in some distance, from significant distance from where their country is. They are there in the place and able to describe it in a much more fluid way. For an outsider, uh, maybe who is not aware of this case that's been ongoing for many, many years. Could you speak to the significance of this compensation claim, perhaps nearing its end or at least nearing the evidence proceedings in that hearing on country? The Yunjibandi have um, had claims for native title in existence since the early and mid-90s. There was a Nalama and Yunjibandi decision about native title some decades ago and then there's been an issue about about what rights of compensation might exist due to aspects of extinguishment of native title within their claim area. I mean, there have been agreements with mining companies, but there's always been a contentious relationship between the Yendibandi and the Fortescue Metals Group, uh, which took them to the High Court arguing about whether the determination of the federal court that they had exclusive native title in some parts of their claim area was correct. The High Court upheld that decision of the federal court uh, and now we're effectively moving to the next phase of establishing what loss the Yunjibandi have suffered as a result of parts of the native title area being extinguished by grants by the Crown, mostly of mining tenements in, within their traditional area. Is this Injibandi case likely to stand out in any way? There are two aspects to the compensation. One is is this market value, which a, a real estate valuation would put on it, which will be much lower than than would ordinarily be in a town or an urban area. Uh, and then the second element is the cultural injury or cultural loss resulting from the compensation, which is from the extinguishment. Both of those elements have to be assessed. Uh, And so I think there'll be a greater emphasis upon the intangible negative effect upon culture, which activities in the Njibani country have had upon the Njibani people. Given that cultural loss is less tangible, as you say, is there a way to estimate how much compensation may be owed? The short answer, I think, is no, other than obviously Timber Creek created some kind of precedent which put it in the sort of millions of dollars ballpark. The judge will not have much of a useful precedent um, from the Timber Creek case, which is the only one which has actually been decided by a court. The judge will have to apply similar principles and, and it will depend probably to a large extent upon the evidence of Yunjibandi people as to how they have been affected in a subjective way by the activities which they've been prevented from from engaging in. The judge will have to try and make an assessment of the compensation based on to what extent Yunjibandi people have been prevented from protecting their country and and what extent of the country has been impacted, which they've not been able to protect the strength of their concern about that. Lawyer Greg McIntyre speaking to Tom Robinson. 20 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjibup and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA.
An update from the newsroom shortly, then checking the weather conditions around Western Australia around about half past 12 today. First, though, a CBH Shareholders Association has just been formed with the key motivation of securing a rebate for growers. Earlier this year, and in an unprecedented move, the state's main grain handler decided it would direct the profits of its marketing and trading division, hundreds of millions of dollars, to the supply chain rather than pay a rebate to growers. According to the new CBH Shareholders Association, that decision is wrong and it could be the start of the co-op's demise. Bill Cowan is the inaugural chair and farms at Mount Walker, 320 kilometres east of Perth. Bill, what's the plan? We hope to work with CBH directors and management in order to it seems like there's a bit of a, a gap between what the farmers want and what's happening at the moment. So what is the motivation for the formation of this uh, group? One of the main issues that we think needs urgent attention is that the surplus made from the market and trading arm, which I thought it was around $500 million, but you, you told me was higher, a large portion of this is being directed into building infrastructure. This would mean that all the farmers that have supported CBH grain marketing would be paying for the infrastructure. And we believe that in order to pay for any infrastructure that's done, it shouldn't be those farmers that have sold their grain through CBH. The farmers that sell their grain through CBH should be paid as much as possible so that they get their maximising their return. And that's one of the CBH, the fundamentals of CBH is maximise returns for growers. With this, we would hope that this infrastructure in a far more equitable way and fairer way is that farmers that are using CBH would pay for that and CBH could take out a long-term loan so it's not, not such a huge amount. If they take out a long-term loan, they would then be able to pay that back in not such huge increases as what we, we are forecast to be looking at. How did you respond then when you heard the news that CBH had made that decision to direct the profits from marketing and trading? And, I, and I'm not aware of exactly how much it is, Bill, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of between five hundred and six hundred million dollars. That's you know the word on the street, I guess, and it's yet to be confirmed yes, by yeah. CBH. But regardless, yes, it is yeah. a lot of money. What was your reaction when you heard that decision had been made to use a, a bulk of that really to go back into the supply chain? Oh, was probably a little bit upset, I think. And I spoke to other farmers and many other farmers were the same. We do not deny that money has to go into infrastructure and that sort of thing. It's that it's probably gone a little bit long and that's why they're, they're trying to play catch up, I think. But you must have been a, a lot more than just a little bit upset because now you've gone to the trouble of forming, forming a CBH Shareholders Association because you want your money back. Well, we yeah, we, we believe that 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 money rightly belongs to those people that have sold their grain. And of course I was upset. There's um, many other farmers that have spoken to me, and it's not just in our local area, it's farmers everywhere that have spoken about this. And the, we, we realise that also the, a huge amount of funds needs to go into the system's capacity. They need to be able to see 3 million tonnes a month, and which is what their plan is but it needs to happen sooner rather than later. So you want those uh, returns to go back to growers from the profits of marketing yep. and trading. You'd like CBH yep. to take out a loan 
to cover yep. the cost oh, that yep. that needs to go into yep. the supply chain. What about selling some assets? What about some flour mills, for example? That leads us into a whole a whole another area. But would you be and happy with that? Getting some money from selling off some assets? I, I personally would be, um, but it's it's up to what the other growers think, and I'm pretty sure that there wouldn't be too many growers that would be upset about mm. it. How are you going to go about this then? Have you spoken to CBH and said, you know, look, we've formed this association, we really don't like the decision that was made here and this money yeah, should go look, back that, in the form of, of a rebate to growers? Our plan was to go and talk to CBH and you've, you've jumped the gun on us. You've actually got us after we've just we've only just had a meeting this morning. Well, that's what this um, show's about, Bill. You hear it first yeah. on the country hour. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, and so that's um, that's what we want to do. We want to talk to CBH. We really want to help. Look, I'm a firm believer in CBH, and I want CBH to to continue and to grow and to prosper and to to give growers the maximum return that it can. Mm. Who's in this group, Bill? This association oh that you formed. Who are the, um, who are the key players? Oh, there's actually many, many key players, and I'm not sure that they want their name read out at this stage, but I, I do know that Bob Ifler's in it and um, Jeff Murray. You know, there's a whole lot, and, and a few people that were involved in the rail, you know, wanting CBH to keep grain on rail and that sort of thing. There's a, a whole lot of people and that are pushing for this, but it's the local farmers as well that are pushing for it. And, and what we hope to do is to put up a website that growers can um, write in or email in any concerns that they're having. And so far we have, you know, we have a whole lot of uh, issues. Some were like people want their rebates from the marketing trading to go back to the loyal growers that have done it. CBH freight costs have, have skyrocketed in, in this year and, and I, I don't know how correct it is, but I've heard one area has gone up 40%. That's massive. Other concerns for growers are the CBH train, new train sets that they're, they're requiring. If they do need them, they need to be acquired. They need to have a, a yearly plan or a detailed annual project plan. These are just concerns of growers. Um, the other one is the long-term loan should be taken out instead of the proposed $20 per tonne for infrastructure, and that's what it it boils down to if we they spend four hundred million a year on infrastructure, then there'll be it'll actually at a twenty million ton crop that'll cost twenty twenty dollars per ton unless I've got my figures wrong. This is the Country Hour on the ABC WA. It is twenty seven past twelve. Mount Walker farmer Bill Cowan is here this afternoon. He's the inaugural chair of the CBH Shareholders Association. It's a group that's just been formed to address a few areas of concern. But the top motivation is opposition to CBH Group's unprecedented decision to transfer the profits of marketing and trading, hundreds of millions of dollars, to help fix the grain supply chain rather than return those profits to growers in the form of a rebate. Do you agree with that? Would you have preferred a rebate? And is it inequitable that only the growers who sold to CBH are investing in the supply chain? And would you prefer CBH to take out a loan or sell some assets to fund the work that needs to be done on the supply chain? The text is 0448 922604. A few texts coming in. I'll just read one quickly now. I'll get to some others shortly. Rob says, rebate debate now takes away from poor management over two decades. Rebates have always been a farce. 
time to move on to an adult discussion about a modern structure for CBH away from a cooperative for such a large business. 0448 604. Now, Bill, how are you going to go about this? Because at the top of the list of your concerns you've just gone through, you want growers to receive a rebate from M&T's profits. So how do you go about it? Because you're going to talk to CBH. It's not just going to say, you know, okay, here's your rebate. Are you going to take a motion to the AGM or, or what's the process here? We would um, like to take it to the AGM and get the the growers' feelings and if, if what we're putting up is, you know, not supported by other growers, then, um, then I'm wasting my time. And I really... Um, can't afford to be wasting my time on projects that aren't going to work. All right, so you'll take it to the AGM. Do you need the signatures for this sort of a motion? We are a little bit unsure at this stage and we have to act very quickly to if we do need a large number of signatures, but we have been advised that we probably, just for this meeting, it's not a, it it isn't, what do you call it, a... um, it's, it's not going to change the constitution. Yeah. No, it's not a constitutional change. So we probably don't need the 350 to 400 signatures right. that we thought we would have. So you could take so, it to the AGM, put the motion forward, and if the motion is passed, does that auto- automatically mean the rebates are, uh, go to growers? I would have to study the CBH constitution a little bit more closely, but I would think that if it's gone there, they the board would have to act on it if it's passed at the AGM. Yeah, okay. Uh, There's never been, well, to my knowledge, a a CBH Shareholders Association. Is this a first? I don't know that there has. This probably could well be a first. I don't know that we've had one before. You're you're a trailblazer then, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't say that, Belinda. I'm a very concerned farmer and I might be totally wrong, but I'm – I believe this crop this year is probably the greatest or the largest crop that WA will or has ever produced. I might be totally off the off the mark, but as far as I can tell, it's going to be a very big crop. How confident are you that you'll get this money back in the form of a rebate? I'm probably not overly confident, but I I would like to see it happen because I think that's what is fair. Mm. So um, you think this is wrong? It, it, what, how would you describe? You know, CBH's behaviour with, with the handling of this? As far as I know, and look, I, I don't know a lot about the workings of CBH, but this is the first time, as far as I know, or that I've heard of, that this money would be used for infrastructure. And it's just the plain truth of it is, Belinda, that it's, it's not right that a small group can be paying for, a, um, for the rest of the people. And this is where in a cooperative is where a cooperative starts to break down is when you have the free rider effect of everyone else in the cooperative riding off the coattails of somebody, some small group that are putting all the money in. That's going to, that, that will be the end of the CBH cooperative very, very quickly. So this is not how a cooperative should be acting in your opinion? Oh, no. I mean, it, and it's not only my opinion. I think uh, anyone who who is striving for fairness can see that you should never have a small group paying for what everyone uses. It should be everybody pay the same. In the longer term, I mean, would you think twice about selling to CBH Grain in the future, knowing how the money has been, is going to be used at this point anyway, going forward? Would, would you I've, think people would have second thoughts? I'm certain they would. 
if that was what was going to happen. And, and you want to be able to sell your grain to CBH with confidence. And that's perhaps what their, um, you know, people aren't, aren't actually um, that confident right now. There's many problems. The, the fact that we aren't shifting grain quick enough is a massive problem. And if you have a look at our press release, we address that too. And we really need the capacity of shifting grain to, be, to go up. Because if we can get, get rid of grain, all of the crop, before, say, July of next year or something, if that becomes the normal to have our, our crop in all delivered by July and, and marketed, we beat the Northern Hemisphere harvest, which is would be absolutely another plus for us, I think. Bill, it's great to have you on the Country Hour, and uh, thank you for going through your uh, new association and the sort of items that are on the agenda for you to discuss with the, the co-op. I appreciate your time. Yep, very good. Thank you, Belinda. See you. Mount Walker farmer Bill Cowan, the inaugural chair of the CBH Shareholders Association. CBH has been contacted for comment. Hopefully I can bring that response to you tomorrow. Text through. A lot of text to get through. 0448 922 604. Do you agree with what Bill's saying? You support this new association? You want some of that money? You want a rebate? Let me know. 0448 922 604. It is 26 to 1 and Jonathan Hopper is here. What's making the headlines, Jonathan? Good afternoon, Belinda. WA's Health Minister says industrial action by the Nurses' Union is having little impact on the state's health system. The Australian Nursing Federation has been encouraging members to take part in bans on overtime and double shifts. It's part of ongoing negotiations for better pay and conditions which will come before the state's Industrial Relations Commission today in an effort to end the stalemate. Western Power has been fined more than $60,000 over an incident which left an employee with serious burns. The Perth Magistrates Court heard the employee was using unsafe cleaning equipment near high-voltage power lines in WA's Great Southern in 2020. And emergency services are searching for a man who has been missing since last week. 46-year-old Darko Prelenda was last seen at a short-stay caravan park in Calbarry on Thursday. Police and DFAIR's Marine Rescue are searching the coastline near Red Bluff Beach. Thanks Belinda. Jonathan, thank you for the update. 25 to 1. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. What do you make of what you've just heard from Bill Cowan? He's the inaugural chair of what's called the CBH Shareholders Association. He's a farmer from Mount Walker. The association has been formed. The top item on the agenda is to secure a rebate for growers. What do you think of it? I'll get through a few texts right now. This from John, as a grower who's always sold his entire crop to CBH, I think they should have paid a rebate. This also, I don't think there's been too much critical forward thinking by Bill and his group. Stuart says it seems strange that CBH is once again interfering with farmers' profits. Didn't they pay a huge amount for a flour mill with a no-interest loan? Now they seem to be using farmers' money. What is going on with CBH? Brian, telling us that it's overcast at Tamberlup, Sounds like Mr Cowan wants his cake and eat it all himself. Rebates are what got us into this predicament in the first place, says Brian. And this from Michael. CBH members need to understand there are intrinsic synergies between CBH's parent company and CBH Grain. And these benefits have been orchestrated in the past for the security and benefit of members. It's a good move to use the one-off excess profit in marketing and trading for improving the supply chain. 
says Michael. That text, 0448 922 604. 24 to 1, shortly off to Mushe for the results of the cattle market and heading into that shearing shed at Cranbrook to get a little taste of all the action over the weekend where that shearing record was broken. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, hi, Belinda. We've got a little bit going on um, during the next sort of two to four days. Um, a lot of thunderstorm activity. So uh, starting with what we've got on at the moment, um, basically we've got some thunderstorms in the southeast coastal district and western parts of the Eucla, and they've produced a bit of rain this morning. So we've had falls around that 20 to 30 millimetres um, around that Israel Bay area and areas east of Esperance. But that activity is now moving offshore and, and we're not expecting as much as the day and night uh, progresses. But then focusing back uh, towards uh, the Perth area and the Perth Hills, we're expecting some storms to develop this afternoon. And that's uh, going to be attributed to a mid-level trough that's going to move uh, across the south of the state. So those storms uh, yeah, developing this afternoon um, eastern side of the hills and then they're going to track uh, to the east through the central wheat belt um, through the next sort of 24 hours and through the gold fields um, on uh, Tuesday and then down to you know basically the Eucla on Wednesday. So they're going to move slowly and they're going to produce a bit of rainfall. So uh, for uh, today uh, we're looking at potential falls around the sort of 20 to 30 mils um, if you're under a storm you know through the hills and the eastern parts of the hills but then as we track through to tomorrow um, those harvesting areas through the central wheat belt potentially could get 10 to 20 millimetres and if you're unlucky under a storm there could be some falls around 30 to 40 millimetres so quite uh, significant falls uh, coming across with this mid-level trough and then as we track to Wednesday a lot of that activity is going to be moving out of the state. It'll just be in the Eucla and, and then tracking out to the east. And then we get a front on Thursday, which is going to bring some more showery activity. And that front is going to produce some rain around that sort of 10 mil mark around the far southwest. And then as you move into the Great Southern, more like 1 to 5. And we're not expecting much rain to get to the central wheat belt. However, there could be some thunderstorms ahead of that front on Thursday um, through the basically the southeast coastal district and southern goldfields in Eucla. Um, so there's a potential through that area, the, the area that's just got the rainfall today, to get uh, 10 to 20 millimetres with those storms. And, and then that moves through on Friday and we start seeing some quite cool conditions move across the um, southwest land division on Friday and, and quite windy conditions along the coast. So that's just going to produce quite wintry, windy, showery conditions on Friday. Falls around 10 to 20 millimetres along that whole south coast. And then we start seeing things starting to fine up um, you know, later in the weekend and go back to more of a summer pattern. So it's quite an interesting four-day period for the Southwest Land Division, Belinda. Yeah, it sure is. I'm glad it's finding up by the weekend, though. That's a nice outlook, something to look forward to. How's it looking around northern and eastern parts? It is pretty hot in some of those northern parts right now. 
Yeah, it's remaining quite hot through those northern parts, so lots of places uh, getting to 40 degrees. But at the moment, we've got a couple of thunderstorms um, through the eastern parts of the Pilbara, stretching into the north interior, and we've got some storms developing through the eastern parts of the Kimberley. Um, there is a potential for some of these storms this afternoon to produce some damaging wind gusts um, through the interior of the state. Um, and then we're going to have these storms just continue through the eastern parts and northern parts of the Kimberley throughout the week, and it's going to remain quite hot. Um, so, uh, yeah, very similar conditions, basically continuing on from Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with those, those storms in the north and east of the Kimberley stretching down into the eastern parts of the interior. And any warnings this afternoon? Yeah, there's the good old strong wind warnings uh, for the Perth coast, the Bunbury Geograph coast, the Esperance coast, and also uh, we've got a fire weather warning for the south interior for tomorrow. Jerry, thank you so much for going through that. 19 to 1. Richard Hudson here now with a look at the weekend rainfall figures. Yeah, so this is 9am Friday to 9am this morning and in the northern and eastern forecast districts, the only one to get any was the Kimberley. Bedford Downs Bedford Downs Airstrip had 25, Diggers Rest topped it with 35, El Questro 16, Gibb River and Halls Creek Airport 9, Kachana 34, Lansdowne 10, Marion Downs and Mullabulla Airstrip 6, Mount Amherst 10, Siddons Creek 9, Theta 5 and Warman and Yulmbu had 26. And then in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, uh, nothing over a mill in the central west. In the lower west, lots of places had between one and four, but nothing more. In the southwest, nothing over a mill. And then in the southern coastal, a little bit. Dalyup Park, 17. Erin Air, 12. Esperance, 18 to 20. Lort River, 21. Munglin up 6 to 7. Oakmarsh Farm, 15. Pleasant Valley, 11. Salmon Gums Research Station topped it for the Southwest Land Division with 25. Tolina Downs, 11. The Duke, 6. And then in the central wheat belt, Kalani recorded 5. And Quarter had 23, which seems a little bit odd because no one else got above 5 in that area. But anyway, in the Great Southern, Holt Rock had 6. And yeah, that's it. Richard, thanks for that. 18 to 1. And just sticking with the weather a little longer and just popping over to the eastern states to keep tabs on the flood situation, because the biggest flood in decades is still threatening to sweep through several towns in rural New South Wales, as weeks of heavy rain has caused rivers to burst and hundreds of people have had to flee their homes. Forbes is experiencing its worst flood in 70 years, and tens of thousands of hectares of farmland are either underwater or being threatened. Reporter Hamish Cole is in Forbes now. Yeah, that major flooding is continuing but starting to recede. The Lachlan River is at 10.58 metres, so still a major flood warning, uh, so still a major flood level, but starting to recede. You know, the waters around town, uh, they've really fallen by um, about 100 metres in the main parts of the CBD, so we're starting to see people get out and about. Shops started to starting to reopen and people getting in to begin the clean-up for those affected by that flood water. And a big clean-up on the way, no doubt. But what about the farmland? I understand tens of thousands of hectares affected. 
Yeah, some modelling that was done on Thursday indicated by then that that 11,000 hectares was being uh, affected by flood water. Now, that was on Thursday. Since then, the flood peak has come and gone, so that number will only rise with the amount of water uh, that is affecting people in and around Forbes. And part of the concern that the SES has is now what this water is going to be doing. It's going to be flowing down to Lachlan to places like Condoblin, where we have prime agricultural land that has been really affected by flood water in the last couple of months. Uh, and you know, they're already at a major flood level, and they haven't even felt the effects of this flood peak here in Forbes. So the SES is very concerned about what this water will be doing for uh, people downstream of the Lachlan, and that's going to have a massive effect on farmers down in places like Gemalong, Condoblin, and further west. Indeed, that's right, and uh, already a big damage bill for a lot of those. A lot of those crops already underwater, so this will be another kick in the guts for many. Yeah, yet another blow. You know, some of the people we've spoken to recently have been unable to to get into their homes. They've been uh, travelling via boat um, between town and their properties. And, you know, with this next flood peak to to come, it's very concerning. It's expected to hit a peak of 7.3 metres on the 14th of November. So still a fair while away before this floodwater will reach them. But a very concerning situation. And, you know, in in, uh, the current uh, period... SES is very concerned about Benderabong, uh, just about 30 kilometres west of Forbes, where there's been a minor breach to the levee bank there. Now, it's a small community there, but um, the SES says if that continues, if they don't fix it shortly, that'll uh, cause widespread inundation of the village there and have a major impact on some of the farmers in and around uh, Baderabong. So, yeah, really concerning situation unfolding there. The SES has got choppers up to um, bring sandbags in and they're sending crews out there to, to assist. But, yeah, very, very concerning situation unfolding there with this floodwater moving out of Forbes and further downstream. And, of course, many of the farmers for months have been uh, affected by floodwater and a lot have been, you know, cut off from town and services and uh, been, you know, unable to move their property, move from their properties for, for weeks. Yeah, you know, that isolation is, is really starting to, to back, uh, back up with the amount that um, amount of time people have been cut off. So it really is a concerning time for, for places like Uabalong. They've been having to get aerial drops to properties and the town there for a number of weeks now. So really concerning situation unfolding with this floodwater moving further downstream. It's something that will definitely be a concerning situation for a number of weeks as yeah, we continue to see this rainfall with this third La Nina in a row um, bringing about these heavy falls. Reporter Hamish Cole speaking with New South Wales Country Hour presenter Michael Condon about the flood situation in New South Wales. 13 to 1, and it's been raining at Grass Patch this morning by the sounds of things. Thanks for this text, Leon. 53 millimetres this morning west of Grass Patch, apparently. Um, Richard will probably read that out again tomorrow anyway. Thank you for that, Leon. 0448-922-604. And quite a few of you keen to have your say on that text number. In regards to the new group that's been formed, it's calling itself the CBH Shareholders Association. Uh, Just been formed and the motivation behind it all is securing a rebate for growers. As you well know, the... Co-op, the state's main grain handler, decided that it would direct the profits of its marketing and trading division. We're not sure how much it is yet. It hasn't been confirmed, but it, you know, 
ballpark five, six hundred million, something like that. And a lot of that to go to the supply chain to try and fix it up because it does have a few problems, as you also know. And there was no rebate to be paid to growers. That was the decision made. And you heard about it here on the country are going back a little bit now. But this new association says that decision is wrong. And it also believes that that inequity by those growers who sold to CBH Grain paying that money to help fix the supply chain is inequitable. And it could be the start of the co-op's demise. And you heard from the inaugural chair, Bill Cowan, who farms at Mount Walker, going through the details and, and what they're hoping to do, put forward a motion, it looks like at this stage, at the annual general meeting. In response to that on the text, Rob says, a few farmers have been subsidising many on CBH freight. Why didn't the Shareholders Association complain about that? Adam says, so Bill wants to ship all of the crop by July but refuses to help pay for it. Who foots the bill when CBH M&T loses money as they have done across many seasons? Uh, Bill was saying that he's all for spending money on the supply chain. He just doesn't want it via this way. He would rather see CBH take out a loan and perhaps even sell off some assets like a flour mill. That's his idea anyway. This from Callum in Katanning. If CBH Marketing and Trading lost money as it has in the past, should those growers that sold with CBH pay that money? And a similar point from Matt. Those requesting a rebate were not offering to pay back money three years ago when marketing and trading lost money, I bet. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Hopefully squeeze in a few more between now and the news at one. 11 to 1. Uh, shortly off to Mouchet for the results of the cattle market. And another world shearing record was broken in Western Australia over the weekend. This time it was the three-stand, eight-hour Merino lamb shearing record. It was at Wayne Peck's shearing shed at Cranbrook in the Great Southern. And the three shearers were brothers, so there was Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. All up, 1,603 lambs were shorn by the three of them in eight hours. So they smashed the previous world record of 1,208. Let's join the action just before the end. So, Wayne, you've got a shearing record on your property today. How does it feel to be hosting? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's uh, just great to see all, all aspects of the sheep and agriculture industry come together and I um, think it's a really great initiative to have Lou, Jim and Imran approach me for this record attempt and, and to be able to, to showcase a lot of the good aspects of, uh, of the sheep industry. How long has this been in the making? Uh, Lou first chatted to me a couple of years ago actually when he when he was shearing at our shed and said this three stand record while quite a demanding day was actually more achievable than some of the other world records and um, so we started thinking about it then and we nearly went ahead next year but then then COVID slowed it down with getting uh, or just put a stop to it with getting judges from New Zealand um, and, and really that's better we've had another 12 months to prepare for it so it's, it's, it's been two years in the making Yeah, um, Maisie McFarlane and um, I'm a rouseabout I just have like one second to even look at the boys. I haven't even been able to check it. Just making sure I'm watching the wool because there's just not any time to like really do anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing the um, help from my staff and the help from other people in the shearing industry. The the amount of work that's been involved in preparing these sheep 
Um, a, a lot of work yesterday getting the sheep ready uh, for today's shearing attempt. It it's, it's just shows uh, the amount of teamwork and, and the positive energy that's um, happened when everything comes together. It's, it's a really fantastic day. Seeing the way they're sweating, oh my god, I, I don't know how they're doing it, but they've pumping way harder than I've seen ever, so I'm pretty proud of like the way they're actually working. It's, it's amazing how quick they can, and efficient they can be. Like, we have hardly any skin coming out, which is awesome, so they're quite clean, but um, there's a little bit of stain on the wool, but that's, that's not too much really, so yeah. record holder now, how's it feel? Feels sore, a little bit sore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel actually, it's sort of just numb all over. Uh, I'm Jim Waterhoo Brown, uh, we just broke the freestanding record and uh, it was a tough effort. How do you feel now? Very sore. And what was motivating you to just keep going along? Oh, family, friends, crew, everyone that's put in the work. Was there a bit of competition between you and your brother and cousin? Oh, I've been sharing so well leading up, I thought I could stick with them, but today they horsed it out, so respect, no matter what, for everyone. And when that timer went off, how'd you feel? Oh, relieved, yeah, I wanted a beer. <laughs> and there was just such a massive crew behind you today, yeah, in front yeah, of you. Like... Yeah, they saw how hard I was doing it. How uh, they would egg me on. I hit a wall, like, I was sore. When did you hit the wall? Just emotions, yeah. Not completely like I was gonna stop or anything, just hurting, yeah. And what kind of got you over the line in the end? Well, the crew, thinking of everyone, what they've done for me, family, just respect. Couldn't let anyone down. Oh, we're prepared for it our whole lives, you know. It's been passed down from the last generation and you're just using the information that they've taught us, all the knowledge, that's where it comes from. And what was going through your head, especially in that last run? Oh, everything, heaps of things, mixed emotions. You just take it as it comes and just keep going, keep digging. That's all you want to find all day, I think, is a rhythm, but it was sort of hard, like, um, sometimes you just get a hard sheep and then your foot, get your feet work will get in front of your blows and... Yeah, sheep will play up a little bit, but I don't know. They each have their own personality, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do, and you can tell right from the get-go whether it's going to be a good one or a nice one, you know, but that's it's all right. We, I was probably cutting them and pulling their hair out of their wool out, so, you know, fair's fair, love and war. Go get a rub down, a uh, few electrolytes and then a couple of beers, I think. It's been a, been a bit of a journey to get here, so it's always been in the back of the mind to do something like this, and... Um, this record was up for grabs and, and the cousin you hooked it up, so yeah, it's, it's pretty good. All, all the family and all that's here, everyone's come from far and wide, like people ain't seen for ages, so it's pretty cool. It's good that it's for like um, something good, not a funeral, that, that's the cool part about it. Yeah, it'd be cool to have it on like on record that I'm, I was in it and a part of it and yeah, I appreciate the whole opportunity of being a Rousey that's like passes to be a part of it so yeah <laughs> I just think the sheep industry and agriculture is, is such an important part of WA and too often we don't necessarily um, 
get the good news stories out there about, about how good uh, we are at farming and, and producing and this is one way of showing that. Shearing is such a um, physically demanding and technical and, and repetitive industry. I've just got uh, so much respect for, for any shearers that make this their life and, and their work and, and I think all we can do to promote what can happen in shearing, whether it's setting records or travelling the world while they're working is, um, is, is good for the sheep industry. Farmer Wayne Peck talking to Sophie Johnson about a new three-stand world shearing record that was set at his Cranbrook shearing shed over the weekend on Saturday. The tired but proud shearers were brothers Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. And you also heard from Roustabout Maisie McFarlane from Franklin River Shearing Services. You're tuned to the Country Hour and it's three minutes to one. Hello, I'm Annie Guest. Join me on The World Today. There'll be no ransom. The Medibank CEO's message to the hackers who stole the data of millions of his customers. A shake-up at Home Affairs, why the minister says the immigration system is broken. And as world leaders gather in Egypt, what do climate scientists say needs to happen to avert disaster? Join me for The World Today at lunchtime. Off to Mishé for the results of the cattle market. Terry Birkin is there. Hi, Terry. How did it go? Hi, Belinda. Numbers were down by 567 with 1,421 live weight and 41 calves for a total of 1,466. A high percentage of young cattle were on offer this week with an even mix of both local and pastoral cattle, so the presence of a few extra buyers in the restocker market provided some good competition. Mature bulls were down 20 cents a kilo and the cow market started off slow but recovered as the sale continued. Local vealer steers were making from 442 cents to 620 cents for better types and vealer heifers sold up to 550 cents per kilo. Young steers to restockers selling from 210 cents to 460 cents depending on breed and quality while young restocker heifers sold up to 400 cents per kilo. Feeder steers made 350 cents to 586 cents Feeder heifers were returning up to 478 cents per kilo. Grown steers selling from 258 cents to 386 cents and grown heifers sold from 250 cents to 438 cents a kilo. Lightweight cows were making up to 180 cents. Medium cows selling up to 240 cents while heavy cows returned up to 330 cents per kilo. Mature heavy bulls sold to 290 cents and shipping bulls were selling from 242 cents to 492 cents per kilo, depending on weight. While light restocker bulls sold up to 540 cents per kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks so much for that, Terry. A minute away from the news at one, Western Australia's Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan has just stepped down. She's been a minister for 13 years. The media conference is underway. Let's quickly join it. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, Alana's been a minister for 13 years, which is, again, and a very long time to be in a cabinet position. And being a cabinet minister means you have to work extremely hard all the time. And so it's quite an amazing contribution. She's actually actually the longest-serving female minister in the history of Western Australia and indeed one of the longest-serving ministers in recent memory. So uh, it's uh, quite a quite an achievement, and she's got a record of achievement as long as you're armed. Uh, one of the things Elena uh, does is she doesn't just occupy the crease. She actually wants to achieve and work. And so in the agriculture portfolio, she 
rebased the funding for the department, which had been in long-term decline prior to her arrival. She's funded enormous amounts of new scientific... We'll have to leave the Premier there. We're out of time. It is news time, one o'clock.